The Sleepy Bookshelf should have something for everyone. If we are missing your favourite story, you can vote for future books on our website, sleepybookshelf.com. Good evening, and welcome to The Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. It's lovely to have you here with me. Tonight, we are returning to the enchanted April. But before that, let's take a moment to relax and prepare for sleep. Close your eyes and get comfortable, breathing slowly and evenly. Whatever position you're in, I'm going to ask you to lift your right hand. And when I count to three, you will drop it back down again. As you do so, you'll be aware of becoming even more deeply relaxed. So, lifting your right hand now. One, two, three, and drop it back down sinking deeper into relaxation. Now the same with your left hand. One, two, three, and drop it back down, sinking even deeper now into relaxation. Now try and lift your right leg. Feel the weight of it. One, two, three, and let it drop back down. And you're even more deeply relaxed now. Finally, your left leg, lifting it up. One, two, three, and dropping it down. Even more deeply relaxed. Now I will count backwards from 10 before recapping our last episode. And after each descending number, I want you to feel yourself dropping further and further into a restful, comfortable relaxation. 10, nine, eight, seven, six, Five, four, three, two, and one. Last time, Lady Caroline was hoping to be left alone by everyone. She feigned a headache so that Domenico would vacate the garden and leave her in peace. There she contemplated the importance of her life in London and wondered what her mother would think if she knew she had been contemplating at all. Meanwhile, Mrs. Fisher was trying to enjoy the battlements which she had taken for herself, but was having difficulty. There was a shared drawing room with French windows opening directly onto that space. She could not be certain the other women wouldn't take advantage of it. And so she had the staff block the entrances up as well as they could to deter people. She didn't want any new, younger friends who didn't understand the good old days. When it was time for lunch, the gong was rung and Mrs. Fisher promptly went to the dining room. The others were late. Lottie and Rose hurried back from their walk, and Mrs. Fisher instructed them to seek out Lady Caroline, who refused to come in, still feigning her headache. In the meantime, Mrs. Fisher demanded to be served regardless. And that is where we pick back up, after lunch in the top gardens at San Salvatore. So just lie back 
and relax as I turn to the next pages of The Enchanted April. Chapter 10 There was no way of getting into or out of the top garden at San Salvatore except through the two glass doors, unfortunately side by side, of the dining room and the hall. A person in the garden who wished to escape unseen could not, for the person to be escaped from could be met on the way. It was a small, oblong garden, and concealment was impossible. What trees there were, the Judas tree, the tamarisk, the umbrella pine, grew close to the low parapets. Rose bushes gave no real cover. One step to the right or left of them, and the person wishing to be private was discovered. Only the northwest corner was a little place jutting out from the Great Wall, a kind of excrescence or loop, no doubt used in the old, distrustful days for observation, where it was possible to sit really unseen, because between it and the house was a thick clump of Daphne. Scrab, after glancing round to see that no one was looking, got up, and carried her chair into this place, stealing away as carefully on tiptoe as those steal whose purpose is sin. There was another excrescence on the walls, just like it at the northeast corner, but this, though the view from it was almost more beautiful, for from it you could see the bay and the lovely mountains behind Mizago was exposed. No bushes grew near it, nor had it any shade. The northwest loop, then, was where she would sit, and she settled into it, and nestling her head in her cushion, and putting her feet comfortably on the parapet from whence they appeared to the villagers on the piazza below as two white doves, thought that now, indeed, she would be safe. Mrs. Fisher found her there, guided by the smell of her cigarette. The incautious scrap had not thought of that. Mrs. Fisher did not smoke herself, and all the more distinctly could she smell the smoke of others. The virile smell met her directly she went out into the garden from the dining room after lunch in order to have her coffee. She had bidden Francesca set the coffee in the shade of the house, just outside the glass door. And when Mrs. Wilkins, seeing a table being carried there, reminded her very officiously and tactlessly, Mrs. Fisher considered that Lady Caroline wanted to be alone. She retorted, and with what propriety, that the garden was for everybody. Into it, accordingly, she went, and was immediately aware that Lady Caroline was smoking. She said to herself, These modern young women, and proceeded to find her, her stick, now that lunch was over, being no longer the hindrance to action that it was before her meal had been securely, as Browning once said. Surely it was Browning? Yes, she remembered how much diverted she had been, roped in. Nobody diverted her now, reflected Mrs. Fisher, making straight for the clump of Daphne. The world had grown very dull and had entirely lost its sense of humour. Probably they still had their jokes, these people. In fact, she knew they did, for punch still went on. But how differently it went on, and what jokes... Thackeray, in his inimitable way, would have made mincemeat of this generation. 
of how much it needed the tonic properties of that astringent pen, it was of course unaware. It no longer even held him, at least so she had been informed, in any particular esteem. Well, she could not give it eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand, but she could and would give it, represented and united in the form of Lady Caroline, a good dose of honest medicine. I hear you are not well, she said, standing in the narrow entrance of the loop and looking down with the inflexible face of one who is determined to do good at the motionless and apparently sleeping scrap. Mrs. Fisher had a deep voice, very like a man's, for she'd been overtaken by that strange masculinity that sometimes pursues a woman during the last lapse of her life. Scrap tried to pretend that she was asleep, but if she had been, her cigarette would not have been held in her fingers, but would have been lying on the ground. She forgot this. Mrs. Fisher did not, and coming inside the loop, sat down on a narrow stone seat built out of the wall. For a little, she could sit on it. For a little, till the chill began to penetrate. She contemplated the figure before her. Undoubtedly a pretty creature, and one that would have had success at Farringford. Strange how easily even the greatest men were moved by exteriors. She had seen with her own eyes Tennyson turn away from everybody, turn, positively, his back on a crowd of eminent people assembled to do him honour, and withdraw to the window with a young person nobody had ever heard of, who had been brought there by accident, and whose one and only merit, if it be a merit, that which is conferred by chance, was beauty. Beauty. All over before you can turn round. An affair, one might almost say, of minutes. Well, while it lasted, it did seem to do what it liked with men. Even husbands were not immune. There had been passages in the life of Mr. Fisher. I expect the journey has upset you, she said in her deep voice. What you want is a good dose of some simple medicine. I shall ask Domenico if there is such a thing in the village. Scrap opened her eyes and looked straight at Mrs. Fisher. Ah, said Mrs. Fisher. I knew you were not asleep. If you had been, you would have let your cigarette fall to the ground. Waste, said Mrs. Fisher. I don't like smoking for women, but I still less like waste. What does one do with people like this? Scrap asked herself, her eyes fixed on Mrs. Fisher in what felt to her an indignant stare, but appeared to Mrs. Fisher as really charming docility. Now you'll take my advice, said Mrs. Fisher, touched. Not neglect what may very well turn into illness. We are in Italy, you know, and one has to be careful. You ought to begin with going to bed. I never go to bed, snapped Scrap, and it sounded as moving and as forlorn as that line spoken years and years ago by an actress playing the part of poor Joe in a dramatized version of Bleak House. I am always moving on, said poor Joe in this play, urged to do so by a policeman. And Mrs. Fisher, then a girl, had laid her head on the red velvet parapet of the front row of the dress circle and wept aloud. It was wonderful, Scrap's voice. It had given her, in the ten years since she came out, all the triumphs that intelligence and wit can have, because it made whatever she said seem memorable. She ought, with a throat formation like that, to have been a singer, but in every kind of music, Scrap was dumb 
except this one music of the speaking voice. And what a fascination. What a spell lay in that. Such was the liveliness of her face and the beauty of her colouring that there was not a man into whose eyes at the sight of her there did not leap a flame of intensest interest. But when he heard her voice, the flame in that man's eyes was caught and fixed. It was the same with every man, educated and uneducated, old, young, desirable themselves or undesirable, men of her own world and bus conductors, generals and Tommies. During the war, she had had a perplexing time. Bishops equally with verges. Round about her confirmation, startling occurrences had taken place. Wholesome and unwholesome. Rich and penniless. Brilliant or idiotic. And it made no difference at all what they were, or how long and securely married. Into the eyes of every one of them when they saw her, leapt this flame. And when they heard her, it stayed there. Scrap had had enough of this look. It only led to difficulties. At first it had delighted her. She'd been excited, triumphant. To be apparently incapable of doing or saying the wrong thing. To be applauded, listened to, petted, adored wherever she went. And when she came home to find nothing there either but the most indulgent, proud fondness... Why, how extremely pleasant. And so easy, too. No preparation necessary for this achievement. No hard work. Nothing to learn. She need take no trouble. She had only to appear and presently say something. But gradually, experiences gathered round her. After all, she had to take trouble. She had to make efforts because she discovered with astonishment and rage she had to defend herself. That look, that leaping look, meant that she was going to be grabbed at. Some of those who had it were more humble than others, especially if they were young. But they all, according to their several ability, grabbed. And she who had entered the world so jauntily with her head in the air and the completest confidence in anybody whose hair was grey, began to distrust and then to dislike and soon to shrink away from and presently to be indignant. Sometimes it was just as if she didn't belong to herself, wasn't her own at all, but was regarded as a universal thing, a sort of beauty of all work. Really, men, and she found herself involved in queer, vague quarrels being curiously hated. Really, women. And when the war came and she flung herself into it along with everybody else, it finished her. Really, generals. The war finished, Scrap. It killed the one man she felt safe with, whom she would have married, and it finally disgusted her with love. Since then, she had been embittered. She was struggling as angrily in the sweet stuff of life as a wasp got caught in honey. Just as desperately did she try to unstick her wings. It gave her no pleasure to outdo other women, she didn't want their tiresome men. What could one do with men when one had got them? None of them would talk to her of anything but the things of love, and how foolish and fatiguing that came after a bit. It was as though a healthy person with a normal hunger was given nothing whatever to eat but sugar. Love. Love. The very word made her want to slap somebody. Why should I love you? Why should I? 
she would ask, amazed sometimes when somebody was trying, somebody was always trying to propose to her. But she never got a real answer, only further incoherent. A deep cynicism took hold of the unhappy scrap. Her inside grew hoary with disillusionment, while her gracious and charming outside continued to make the world more beautiful. What had the future in it for her? She would not be able, after such a preparation, to take hold of it. She was fit for nothing. She had wasted all this time being beautiful. Presently, she wouldn't be beautiful, and what then? Scrap didn't know what then. It appalled her to wonder, even. Tired as she was of being conspicuous, she was at least used to that. She had never known anything else. And to become inconspicuous, to fade, to grow shabby and dim, would probably be most painful. And once she began, what years and years of it there would be. Imagine, thought Scrap, having most of one's life at the wrong end. Imagine being old for two or three times as long as being young. Stupid. Stupid. Everything was stupid. There wasn't a thing she wanted to do. There were thousands of things she didn't want to do. Avoidance, silence, invisibility if possible, unconsciousness. These negations were all she asked for a moment and here, even here, she was not allowed a minute's peace. And this absurd woman must come pretending, merely because she wanted to exercise power and make her go to bed and make her hideous drink castor oil, that she thought she was ill. I'm sure, said Mrs. Fisher, who felt the cold of the stone beginning to come through and knew she could not sit much longer. You'll do what is reasonable. Your mother would wish. Have you a mother? A faint wonder came into Scrap's eyes. Have you a mother? If ever anybody had a mother, it was Scrap. It had not occurred to her that there could be people who had never heard of her mother. She was one of the major marchionesses. There being, as no one knew better than Scrap, marchionesses and marchionesses, and had held high positions at court. Her father, too, in his day, had been most prominent. His day was a little over, poor dear, because in the war he had made some important mistakes. Besides, he was now grown old. Still, there he was, an excessively well-known person, how restful, how extraordinarily restful to have found someone who had never heard of her lot, or at least had not yet connected her with them. She began to like Mrs. Fisher. Perhaps the originals didn't know anything about her either. When she first wrote to them and signed her name, that great name of Desta, which twisted in and out of English history like a bloody thread, for its bearers constantly killed. She'd taken it for granted that they would know who she was. And at the interview of Shaftesbury Avenue, she was sure they did know, because they hadn't asked, as they otherwise would have, for references. Scrap began to cheer up. If nobody at San Salvatore had ever heard of her, if for a whole month she could shed herself get right away from everything connected with herself. To be allowed really to forget the clinging and the clogging and all the noise, why, perhaps she might make something of herself after all. She might really think, really clear up her mind, really come to some conclusion. What I want to do here she said, leaning forward in her chair 
and clasping her hands round her knees and looking up at Mrs. Fisher, whose seat was higher than hers, almost with animation, so much pleased was she that Mrs. Fisher knew nothing about her. It's come to a conclusion. That's all. She isn't much to want, is it? Just that. She gazed at Mrs. Fisher, and though that almost any conclusion would do, the great thing was to get hold of something, catch something tight, cease to drift. Mrs. Fisher's little eyes surveyed her. I should say, she said, that what a young woman like you wants is a husband and children. Well, that's one of the things I'm going to consider, said Scrap amiably. But I don't think it would be a conclusion. And meanwhile, said Mrs. Fisher, getting up, for the cold of the stone was now through. I shouldn't trouble my head if I were you with considerings and conclusions. Women's heads weren't made for thinking. I assure you, I should go to bed and get well. I am well, said Scrap. Then why did you send a message that you were ill? I didn't. Then I've had all the trouble of coming out here for nothing. But wouldn't you prefer coming out and finding me well than coming out and finding me ill? Asked Scrap, smiling. Even Mrs. Fisher was caught by the smile. Well... You're a pretty creature, she said forgivingly. It's a pity you weren't born fifty years ago. My friends would have liked looking at you. I'm very glad I wasn't, said Scrap. I dislike being looked at. Absurd, said Mrs. Fisher, growing stern again. That's what you are made for, young women like you. For what else, pray? And I assure you that if my friends had looked at you, you would have been looked at by some very great people. I dislike very great people, said Scrap, frowning. There had been an incident quite recently, really potentate. What I dislike, said Mrs. Fisher, now as cold as that stone she had got up from, is the pose of the modern young woman. It seems to me pitiful, positively pitiful in its silliness, and her stick crunching the pebbles as she walked away. It's all right, Scrap said to herself, dropping back into her comfortable position with her head in the cushion and her feet on the parapet. If only people would go away, she didn't in the least mind why they went. Don't you think darling Scrap is growing a little, just a little peculiar? Her mother had asked her father a short time before that latest peculiarity of the flight to San Salvatore, uncomfortably struck by the very odd things Scrap said, and the way she had taken to slinking out of reach whenever she could, and avoiding everybody except, such a sign of age, quite young men almost boys. Eh? What? Peculiar? Well, let her be peculiar if she likes. A woman with her looks can be any damned thing she pleases, was the infatuated answer. I do let her, said her mother meekly. And indeed, if she did not, what difference would it make? Mrs. Fisher was sorry she had bothered about Lady Caroline. She went along the hall towards her private sitting room, and her stick as she went struck the stone floor with a vigour in harmony with her feelings. Sheer silliness, these poses. She had no patience with them. Unable to be or do anything of themselves, the young of the present generation tried to achieve a reputation for cleverness by decreeing all that was obviously great and obviously good, and by praising everything, 
however obviously bad, that was different. Apes, thought Mrs. Fisher, roused. Apes. Apes. And in her sitting room, she found more apes, or what seemed to her in her present mood more. For there was Mrs. Arbuthnot, placidly drinking coffee, while at the writing table, the writing table she already looked upon as sacred, using her pen, her own pen, brought for her hand alone from Prince of Wales Terrace, sat Mrs. Wilkins, writing, at the table, in her room, with her pen. Isn't this a delightful place? said Mrs. Arbuthnot cordially. We've just discovered it. I'm writing to Melash, said Mrs. Wilkins, turning her head and also cordially, as though Mrs. Fisher thought she cared a straw who she was writing to, and anyhow knew who the person she called Melash was. He'll want to know, said Mrs. Wilkins' optimism, induced by her surroundings, that I've got here safely. Chapter 11 The sweet smells that were everywhere in San Salvatore were alone enough to produce concord. They came into the sitting room from the flowers on the battlements and met the wands from the flowers inside the room and almost, thought Mrs. Wilkins, could be seen greeting each other with a holy kiss. Who could be angry in the middle of such gentleness? Who could be acquisitive, selfish in the old, rasped London way, in the presence of this bounteous beauty? Yet Mrs. Fisher seemed to be all three of these things. There was so much beauty, so much more than enough for everyone, that it did appear to be a vain activity to try and make a corner in it. Yet Mrs. Fisher was trying to make a corner in it, and had railed off a portion for her exclusive use. Well, she would get over that presently. She would get over it, inevitably, Mrs. Wilkins was sure, after a day or two in the extraordinary atmosphere of peace in that place. Meanwhile, she obviously hadn't even begun to get over it. She stood and looked at her and rose with an expression that appeared to be one of anger. Anger, fancy. Silly old nerve-wracked London feelings, thought Mrs. Wilkins, whose eyes saw the room full of kisses and everybody in it being kissed. Mrs. Fisher, as copiously as she herself, and Rose, You don't like us being in here, said Mrs. Wilkins, getting up and at once, after her manner, fixing on the truth. Why? I should have thought, said Mrs. Fisher, leaning on her stick. You could have seen that this is my room. You mean because of the photographs, said Mrs. Wilkins. Mrs. Arbuthnot who was a little red and surprised, got up too. And the notepaper? said Mrs. Fisher. Notepaper with my London address on it? That pen? She pointed. It was still in Mrs. Wilkins's hand. It's yours. I am very sorry, said Mrs. Wilkins, laying it on the table. And she added, smiling, that it had just been writing some very amiable things. But why? asked Mrs. Arbuthnot, who found herself unable to acquiesce in Mrs. Fisher's arrangements without at least a gentle struggle. Ought we not to be in here? It's a sitting room. There is another one, said Mrs. Fisher. You and your friend cannot sit in two rooms at once, and if I have no wish to disturb you in yours, I'm unable to see why you should disturb me in mine. But why... began Mrs. Arbuthnot again. It's quite natural, 
Mrs. Wilkins interrupted, for Rose was looking stubborn. And turning to Mrs. Fisher, she said that although sharing things with friends was pleasant, she could understand that Mrs. Fisher, still steeped in the Prince of Wales Terrace attitude to life, did not yet want to, but that she would get rid of that after a bit and feel quite different. Soon, you'll want us to share, said Mrs. Wilkins reassuringly. Why, you may even get so far as asking me to use your pen if you knew I hadn't got one. Mrs. Fisher was moved almost beyond control by this speech. To have a ramshackle young woman from Hampstead patting her on the back, as it were, in breezy certitude that quite soon she would improve, stirred her more deeply than anything had stirred her since her first discovery that Mr. Fisher wasn't what he seemed. Mrs. Wilkins must certainly be curbed. But how? There was a curious imperviousness about her. At that moment, for instance, she was smiling as pleasantly and with as unclouded a face as if she were saying nothing in the least impertinent. Would she know she was being curbed? If she didn't know, if she were too tough to feel it, then what? Nothing except avoidance, except precisely one's own private sitting room. I am an old woman, said Mrs. Fisher, and I need a room to myself. I cannot get about because of my stick, and as I cannot get about, I have to sit. Why should I not sit quietly? and undisturbed as I told you in London I intended to. If people are to come in and out all day long, shattering and leaving doors open, you will have broken the agreement which was that I was to be quiet. But we haven't the least wish, began Mrs. Arbuthnot, who was again cut short by Mrs. Wilkins. We're only too glad said Mrs. Wilkins, for you to have this room if it makes you happy. We didn't know about it, that's all. We wouldn't have come in if we had, not till you invited us anyhow, I expect. She finished looking down cheerfully at Mrs. Fisher. You soon will. And picking up her letter, she took Mrs. Arbuthnot's hand and drew her towards the door. Mrs. Arbuthnot did not want to go. She, the mildest of women, was filled with a curious and surely unchristian desire to stay and fight. Not, of course, really, nor even with any definitely aggressive words. No, she only wanted to reason with Mrs. Fisher and to reason patiently. But she did feel that something ought to be said and that she ought not to allow herself to be rated and turned out as if she were a schoolgirl caught in ill behaviour by authority. Mrs. Wilkins, however, drew her firmly to and through the door, and once again Rose wondered at Lottie, at her balance, her sweet, equable temper. She who in England had been such a thing of gusts, from the moment they got to Italy, it was Lottie who seemed the elder. She certainly was very happy, blissful in fact. Did happiness so completely protect one? Did it make one so untouchable, so wise? Rose was happy herself, but not anything like so happy. Evidently not, for not only did she want to fight Mrs. Fisher, she wanted something else, something more than this lovely place, something to complete it. She wanted Frederick. For the first time in her life, she was surrounded by perfect beauty, and her one thought was to show it to him, to share it with him. She wanted Frederick. She yearned for Frederick. Oh, if only only Frederick. Poor old thing, 
said Mrs. Wilkins, shutting the door gently on Mrs. Fisher and her triumph. Fancy on a day like this. She's a very rude old thing, said Mrs. Arbuthnot. She'll get over that. I'm sorry we chose just her room to go and sit in. It's much the nicest, said Mrs. Arbuthnot. And it isn't hers. Oh, but there are lots of other places. And she's such a poor old thing. Let her have the room. Whatever does it matter? And Mrs. Wilkins said she was going down to the village to find out where the post office was and post her letter to Mellage. And Rose would go too. I've been thinking about Mellash, said Mrs. Wilkins as they walked, one behind the other, down the narrow, zigzag path, up which they had climbed in the rain the night before. She went first. Mrs. Arbuthnot, quite naturally now, followed. In England it had been the other way about. Lottie, timid, hesitating, except when she burst out so awkwardly getting behind the calm and reasonable Rose whenever she could. I've been thinking about Mellash, repeated Mrs. Wilkins over her shoulder, as Rose seemed not to have heard. Have you? said Rose, a faint distaste in her voice, for her experiences with Mellash had not been of a kind to make her enjoy remembering him. She had deceived Mellash, therefore she didn't like him. She was unconscious that this was the reason of her dislike and thought it was that there didn't seem to be much, if any, of the grace of God about him. And yet how wrong to feel that. She rebuked herself. And how presumptuous. No doubt Lottie's husband was far, far nearer to God than she herself was ever likely to be. Still, She didn't like him. I've been a mean dog, said Mrs. Wilkins. A what? asked Mrs. Arbuthnot, incredulous of her hearing. All this coming away and leaving him in that dreary place while I rollick in heaven. He had planned to take me to Italy for Easter himself. Did I tell you? No, said Mrs. Arbuthnot and indeed she had discouraged talk about husbands. Whenever Lottie had begun to blurt out things, she had swiftly changed the conversation. One husband led to another, in conversation as well as in life, she felt, and she could not, she would not talk of Frederick. Beyond the bare fact that he was there, he had not been mentioned, Mellish had had to be mentioned because of his obstructiveness, but she had kept him from overflowing outside the limits of necessity. Well, he did, said Mrs. Wilkins. He had never done such a thing before in his life, and I was horrified. Fancy, just as I had planned to come to it myself. She paused on the path and looked up at Rose. Yes, said Rose trying to think of something else to talk about. Now you see why I've been a mean dog. He planned a holiday in Italy with me, and I had planned a holiday in Italy leaving him at home. I think, she went on, her eyes fixed on Rose's face. Melash has every reason to be both angry and hurt. Mrs. Arbuthnot was astonished, the extraordinary quickness with which, hour by hour, under her very eyes, Lottie became more selfless, disconcerted her. She was turning into something surprisingly like a saint. Here she was now being affectionate about Mellash. Mellash, who only that morning, while they hung their feet into the sea, had seemed a mere iridescence, Lottie had told her. A thing of gauze. That was only that morning, and by the time they had had lunch, Lottie had developed so far as to have got him solid enough again to write to, and to write to at length. Now, a few minutes later, 
she was announcing that he had every right to be angry with her and hurt, and that she herself had been. The language was unusual, but it did express real penitence. A mean dog. Rose stared at her astonished. If she went on like this, soon a nimbus might be expected around her head. Was there already if one didn't know it was the sun through the tree trunks catching her sandy hair? A great desire to love and be friends. To love everybody. To be friends with everybody seemed invading Glotty. A desire for sheer goodness. Rose's own experience was that goodness, the state of being good, was only reached with difficulty and pain. It took a long time to get to it. In fact, one never did get to it. Or if for a flashing instant one did, it was only for a flashing instant. Desperate perseverance was needed to struggle along its path. And all the way was dotted with doubts. Lottie simply flew along. She had certainly, thought Rose, not got rid of her impetuousness. It had merely taken on another direction. She was now impetuously becoming a saint. Could one really attain goodness so violently? Wouldn't there be an equally violent reaction? I shouldn't, said Rose with caution looking down into Lottie's bright eyes. The path was steep so that Lottie was well below her. I shouldn't be sure of that too quickly. But I am sure of it, and I've written and told him so. Rose stared. Why, but only this morning, she began. It's all in this, interrupted Lottie, tapping the envelope and looking pleased. What, everything? You mean about the advertisement and my savings being spent? Oh no, not yet. But I'll tell him all that when he comes. When he comes, repeated Rose. I've invited him to come and stay with us. Rose could only go on staring. It's the least I could do. Besides, look at this. Lottie waved her hand. Disgusting not to share it. I was a mean dog to go off and leave him. But no dog I've ever heard of was as mean as I'd be if I didn't try and persuade Melash to come out and enjoy this too. It's barest decency that he should have some of the fun out of my nest egg. After all, he has housed me and fed me for years. One shouldn't be churlish. But do you think he'll come? Oh, I hope so said Lottie with the utmost earnestness, and added, Poor lamb. At that, Rose felt she would like to sit down. Melash, a poor lamb. That same Melash who a few hours before was a mere shimmer. There was a seat at the bend of the path, and Rose went to it and sat down. She wished to get her breath, gain time, if she had time, she might perhaps be able to catch up the leaping Glotty, and perhaps be able to stop her before she committed herself to what she probably, presently, would be sorry for. Melash, at San Salvatore. Melash, from whom Lotty had taken such pains recently to escape. I see him here, said Lotty, as if in answer to her thoughts. Rose looked at her with real concern, for every time Lottie said that in that convinced voice, I see what she saw came true. Then it was supposed that Mr. Wilkins too would presently come true. I wish, said Rose anxiously, I understood you. Don't try, said Lottie, smiling. But I must, because I love you. Dear Rose, said Lottie, swiftly bending down and kissing her. You're so quick, said Rose. I can't follow your development, 
I can't keep touch. It was what happened with Frederick. She broke off and looked frightened. The whole idea of our coming here, she went on again, as Lottie didn't seem to have noticed, was to get away, wasn't it? Well, we've got away. And now, after only a single day of it, you want to write to the very people. She stopped. The very people we were getting away from, finished Lottie. It's quite true. It seems idiotically illogical. But I'm so happy. I'm so well. I feel so fearfully wholesome. This place, why it makes me feel flooded with love. And she stared down at Rose in a kind of radiant surprise. Rose was silent a moment. Then she said, Do you think it will have the same effect on Mr. Wilkins? Lottie laughed. (laughs) I don't know, she said. But even if it doesn't, there's enough love about to flood 50 Mr. Wilkinses, as you call him. The great thing is, is to have lots of love about. I don't see, she went on. At least I don't see here, though I did at home, that it matters who loves, as long as somebody does. I was a stingy beast at home, and I used to measure and count. I had a queer obsession about justice, as though justice mattered, as though justice can really be distinguished from vengeance. It's only love that's any good. At home, I wouldn't love Melash unless he loved me back exactly as much. Absolute fairness. Did you ever? And as he didn't, neither did I. And the aridity of that house, the aridity. Rose said nothing. She was bewildered by Lottie. One odd effect of San Salvatore on her rapidly developing friend was her sudden free use of robust words. She had not used them in Hampstead. Beast and dog were more robust than Hampstead cared about. In words, too, Lottie had come unchained. But how she wished, oh, how Rose wished that she too could write to her husband and say, come. The Wilkins menage, however pompous Mellish might be, and he seemed to Rose pompous, was on a healthier, more natural footing than hers. Lottie could write to Melash and would get an answer. She couldn't write to Frederick, for only too well did she know he wouldn't answer. At least, he might answer a hurried scribble, showing how bored he was at doing it with perfunctory thanks for her letter. But that would be worse than no answer at all. For his handwriting, her name on an envelope addressed by him stabbed her heart. Too acutely did it bring back the letters of their beginnings together. The letters from him, so desolate with separation, so aching with love and longing to see apparently one of these very same letters arrive and open to find, Dear Rose, thanks for the letter. Glad you're having a good time. Don't hurry back. Say if you want any money. Everything going splendidly here. Yours, Frederick. No, it couldn't be born. I don't think I'll come down to the village with you today, she said, looking up at Lottie with eyes suddenly gone dim. I think I want to think. All right, said Lottie at once, starting off briskly down the path. But don't think too long, she called back over her shoulder. Write and invite him at once. Invite whom? Asked Rose, startled. Your husband. <laughs>